With that, we're going to take our Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 4, continue our study there. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to finish up this uh, paragraph that goes all the way to verse 16. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11 and then go to verse 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. This is the word of our Lord. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, we're grateful for the freedom we have to gather, to sing your praises, and now to hear your word. We pray you would open our eyes to the truths here. Help us receive the message you have for us. Help us apply that message in our own life. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. As Christians, we understand that eternally, there are only two categories of people. There are those headed toward eternal joy and those headed toward eternal judgment. There is no middle ground, according to the scriptures. You're either eternally united to Jesus Christ or you will be eternally condemned by Jesus Christ. We know those are the only two possibilities, but that doesn't mean that we can always immediately know what group someone is in. If we think about each of those groups, you have believers, unbelievers, if you think about them as two categories, but also as a spectrum, the people on the far ends of the spectrum, those are very easy to identify. So you have believers, for example, who are very strong in their faith. They stand out because of their holiness. There's evident fruit in their life. They love God, they're, they're running from sin, they're repenting, there's a genuine humility in their heart because they, they desire the glory of God above everything else. Those are easier to identify, these are, these are Christians, these are new creations, we can see that. At the other end of the spectrum, you have unbelievers who are easy to identify as unbelievers. They, 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 may be not, they don't even profess faith, they openly reject Christ, they openly reject the truth of his word. Where things aren't as clear from, from a human perspective are the people toward the middle. God knows whether someone is saved or not, but it's not always easy for us to recognize it. There are Christians who are saved. They're, they're, they're saved by God. They belong to Christ, 
but they're young or they're weak in their faith. They, they may not have a healthy understanding of sound doctrine. They may struggle to articulate what it is they believe. They may struggle against some overcoming sin in their life. They may be particularly prone to doubt. Again, they still may be saved. God knows if their faith is genuine, but externally, it, it can be a little trickier to be confident. When someone comes to the Lord, we are affirming their faith based on their profession and based on the truth of God's word. But simply looking at their life, there just isn't enough time to see the fruit. We know that there's a possibility that people can think they're saved and not be saved because the Bible speaks directly to that. There are those who claim to follow Christ and after some time, fall away. Jesus compared those people's hearts to rocky ground with shallow soil or to soil overrun by thorns. He says the seed of God's word appears to take root, but their faith is scorched by tribulation or choked by the pleasures of this world. They, they endure for a short time, but then they fall away. Jesus warned about that at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven. He said, there are those who will openly profess faith and loyalty to Christ. Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We performed miracles in your name. But in the end, Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What they thought they were doing for good, they were actually doing to serve themselves. Maybe the typical example of that would be Judas Iscariot. All of us assume that if we were there at the Last Supper, you could point out Judas just by looking at him. But Jesus said, one of you would betray me, and they all said, is it me? Is it no one knew who it was? He openly followed Christ, but inwardly we know from the Gospel of John especially, he was rebelling against the Lord. He was in it for himself. The possibility of Christians or at least the professing Christians falling away from the faith is what makes it so critical that a local church not simply be concerned about converts. You came to faith, we baptized you, and now we're done. You can't do that. The, the, the Great Commission does not allow us to simply stop focusing on someone once they come to the Lord. The commandment is to grow them in the faith. Go, baptize them, and then he says for the rest of their life, you're teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. In other words, God does not want any of us to stay as baby Christians. You see that in the heart of the apostle Paul. He was greatly concerned that the people, the flocks in his care, were growing both in doctrine and in holiness, he wanted them to know the truth and he wanted them to live the truth. And particularly for those who were young, he wanted them placed within a, a local church where they would be protected and they would be instructed. That's how you grow. We've already seen in verse 11 that the primary responsibility from a human perspective falls on the leaders of the church, which in the early church was the apostles. Now we have pastor elders, pastor teachers. They, they feed the flock the word of God. They nourish the flock, and in doing that, the church becomes a community in which everyone begins to work for the health of one another. Last week, we were in chapter four, looking at verse 14. It mentions there the danger that individual Christians and, and churches will face. If we remain as spiritual children, 
Paul says we're going to be tossed to and fro by the waves. We're going to be carried about by every wind of doctrine, by deceitful schemes, by human cunning. There's a danger when we give in to false teaching. If someone is a genuine believer, false teaching is going to hinder their growth. They'll stay that way. They won't ever live with the assurance and the joy that God intends for them. If someone is a false convert, false teaching can actually begin to deepen his deception. He's more and more convinced that he's a Christian, but really isn't. This is the battle of our time. Paul says to Timothy, the church is supposed to be a pillar and support of the truth. We, we take a stand on the truth. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul refers to false teaching as that which comes from deceitful spirits. He says those are doctrines of demons. And that's a reminder that, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not an earthly battle. There is a war, like Peter says, with the sin in our hearts, and there's a war against Satan, who is the father of lies, the father of all false religion. Coming back to Ephesians chapter four, we have now in verse 15, Paul returning to the positive side of a healthy church. If you look at, I have ESV today, uh, verse 15 begins with the word rather. He's, he's, he's coming back from, he's contrasting the deception and the dangers outside the church with the nature of the true church. What should the body of Christ look like? Or to say it more personally, what is the vision that Christ has for us as a local church? What does Jesus want for First Bilingual Baptist Church? We get to answer that this morning by looking at verses 15 and 16. What kind of church does Jesus want for you and for me? Number one, Jesus wants a church marked by a Christ-exalting sincerity, the Christ-exalting sincerity. Again, verse 14 speaks of the danger and the deceit of false teachers. That would be false doctrine, and it would also include immorality, wickedness that pulls people away from the holiness of Christ. Rather, that's verse 15, instead of that, he wants this, speaking the truth in love. It's an interesting phrase. It's kind of tricky to translate because in the Greek, when Paul wrote, he took the noun for Greek and he turns it into a verb. Actually, it's a participle, so I-N-G. And if you translated it literally, it would say truthing in love, which is kind of an interesting way to say that. The word includes more than just speaking the truth or telling the truth. It's not... It, it, in Paul's mind here, he's not dealing with truth as opposed to saying a lie. That, that's gonna come later in verse 25. He's talking about living the truth, putting the truth into practice. And that would be, for a church, the personal, personal embodiment of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But it's not the truth all by itself. He says we are to live, we are to live the truth in love. So the, he's coupling, he's matching those things. We have truth and we have love. Jesus wants a truth, a church, I'm sorry, where people are living out the truth in love. And we know love to be one of the foundational characteristics of a Christian. We're a new creation. God is our father. God is love. And there, by spiritual DNA, we could say we are loving people. 
The, the idea here is that we should have a sincere devotion, one, to true doctrine, but also to true righteousness and to true love for one another. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Truth and love are not intended to be opposed to each other. It's not a spectrum where you pick one or the other. They're supposed to go hand in hand. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us real love, the love of Christ, does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. The Corinthian church had all kinds of problems, and Paul writes the letter to correct a lot of those problems, and he's doing so because of his love. If I really love someone, I cannot endorse them on the path of wickedness. Our culture calls that tolerance, and they say, no, that's the true expression of love. But that's wrong. That's false love. It's not love to allow someone to continue in their rebellion against God, especially to the danger of his or her soul. And we see that modeled perfectly, obviously, by our Lord Jesus. He, he loved people enough to call them out of their sin so they would be rescued from judgment and reconciled to the Heavenly Father. Sometimes he spoke to Pharisees. They're, they're those who, who were supposed to have known the scriptures. They were teachers of scriptures, but they greatly misrepresented God. And when he talked to the Pharisees, he was harsh. He was direct. He needed to expose their lies and free everyone who was listening to them. On the other hand, you have Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman or the rich young ruler, people who, who didn't know the scriptures, but they, and they were seemingly trapped by their sin. To them, he was gentle. He was gracious, but he spoke the truth. He treated their sin maybe the way a father would treat the splinter in his daughter's hand. You have to deal with it. It's gonna hurt. But it will hurt much more if it never gets addressed. This is the combination of truth and love. This is the kind of heart Jesus wants for us as his church. Unlike the deception and the immorality of false teachers, the church of Christ should be a place of sincerity and holiness. We're to have true motives and we're to walk in truth. The Apostle John uses that phrase, 3 John, verse four, speaking as the elder over the churches. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That, that you see the same idea in the Old Testament. The, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. It uses the same word Paul uses here for walking in truth or practicing the truth in Proverbs 21, verse three. The verse verse says, to do righteousness and justice, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So, So God is not after just external religious rituals, show up at church or give an offering. He's after your life. We are to be doing righteousness, doing justice. Walking in truth and love means we walk like Jesus. And we should pause just at seeing the the coupling of those words and realize that there are some of us here who care more about truth than love and we have to work on building up the love side. There are people who look around and say, well, I know what their problem is and I don't have any patience for them. There's truth, but there's a lack of love. And so someone might come to you telling you they're about to lose their job and you decide to lecture them about how they should have been saving up money 
There's some truth there, maybe, but there's no love. Others of us might have more love than truth. We just want to walk around, give everybody a hug, and hopefully say nothing that's ever going to make them feel bad. And so we end up not telling them things they may need to hear. If your friend comes to you, says they're about to get fired because they're always showing up late to work and they can't get along with their coworkers, they need more than just a sympathetic hug. They need to be urged with truth gently, though. That's Galatians 6. Someone's trapped in sin. Give them the truth, but with gentleness, with grace. The church is supposed to be marked by sincerity. We're supposed to be marked by truth and love. Not just, we don't, we're not trying to pick one. We need both. We don't want to be Pharisees, neglecting people's pain and difficulty. But we also don't want to look the other way and enable people in their sin, unwilling to give them the truth they need. We're called to manifest the sincerity of Christ who lived and spoke the truth in love. That's a sincere church. Now, a second aspect of Christ's vision for his church, number two, Jesus wants a church marked by a Christ-exalting growth. And we've been talking about this. He wants a Christ-exalting sincerity and a Christ-exalting growth. Speaking the truth in love is what enables a church to grow. It's how we grow. You came to Christ through the truth. Someone spoke the truth to you. Peter says at the end of chapter one, this is the word that was preached to you. It was the seed planted in your heart and the spirit brought life. The word gave you life and it's the word that grows you. When you speak the truth, which is God's truth, when you speak the truth in love, people grow. Jesus wants a growing church and the focus here is not numbers. Like I said last week, it's personal spiritual growth in all of us and that translates into corporate growth. Look at verse 15. One more time. It says, rather, instead of all the deception of of false teaching, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Notice the middle of the verse. We are to grow up. If you're a young Christian, God does not intend for you to stay that way. He wants you to grow. He wants you to grow in doctrine. He wants you to grow in holiness. He wants you to understand his word and he wants you to live it out. We understand what it is to grow. Every aspect of life has growth. You're born in this world. You learn to walk. You learn to talk. You grow up. You you learn to play video games. You learn to play an instrument. You learn to play a sport. We all know what it's like to grow in something, to to get better. Some things in this life we can master. You no longer have to pull out the recipe book every time. You've cooked it enough times, you know how to make it. Eventually, we all stop growing physically. But Christ-honoring growth in the church is never supposed to stop. We're called not just to grow in a generic sense. We're called, the verse says, to grow up in every way. In other words, Christ-exalting growth is comprehensive. It's all-encompassing. One element of that growth, like I've said, is doctrinal. There's an intellectual component to it. Some of you, I I don't like school. I don't want to learn more. Well, guess what? Christ gave us a book. He gave us stories. He gave us letters so we would learn who he is. This is how we grow. 
Learning doctrine is the foundation for Christian growth. I remember we had a, a pastor's meeting and the pastor's interacting and one pastor said to another pastor, you know, I think you just have such a strong understanding in the sovereignty of God. And then he said, and you're kind of wondering, you know, why would you say that to someone? We're kind of getting to know each other. And he said, because every time I see you, you're so cheerful and you're so joyful. He was making a connection. He, was, he, didn't, he didn't attribute it to personality. He was attributing it to the theology of the other pastor. That's the, that's the connection. Doctrine should translate into real life. That's the way it's supposed to be. When you inundate yourself with the truths of God, with the attributes of who he is, it doesn't immediately erase any difficulty in your life, but it changes your perspective. That's part of growing up in every way. You see that in Acts, I think it's chapter four. The, 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 the apostles are jailed for their faith. They come out and then they pray and they don't pray, Lord, please stop the jail time. They say, Lord, give us more boldness. Thank you for allowing us to preach the truth of Christ. They had a bigger vision of God. So growing up in every way has a doctrinal component and then there's a practical component. We're to be growing in the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what we should be moving toward. That's comprehensive growth. Comprehensive growth also means it shouldn't be confined to a specific day or to a specific group of people. If you're showing up on Sunday and you're being a better Sunday Christian, you're, you're teaching a class or now you're participating or you're listening better in class, but you're the same person Monday through Saturday, that's not growing up in every way. If you're learning to be loving and kind and patient at work, that's good, but if you're not doing it at home, that's not enough. We need to be growing. And the measurement of our Christian growth is what? Is who? It's Christ. It's Christ. We're moving toward him. That We're moving in the direction of Christ. That's what mature faith looks like. You can back up to verse 13. Verse 13, we're growing to the unity of the faith. We're growing to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. We're growing to mature manhood. We're growing to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's Christian growth. As you mature as a Christian, it's not that you're going to look more like your mom or your dad. It's not that you're going to look more like me or more like the elders. It's not that you're going to look more like the brothers and sisters in the Lord. Some of that will happen. But ultimately, spiritual growth means you look more like Christ. And as you look more like Christ, and as I look more like Christ, collectively, the church as the body of Christ is growing up to look more like Christ. There's an important reminder here. For, for all of us, but particularly for pastors and, and teachers, elders, our goal is to make you like Christ. We aren't necessarily trying to say, well, let's raise up new elders, let's raise up new teachers, let's raise up new ministry leaders. We're called to promote Christ-honoring growth so that you will be like Christ, and as you grow to be like Christ, we'll see where God will use you. You don't need to pigeonhole people. Well, they're, they're going to be this. You don't know. You, they're going to be like Christ. And then we'll see how Christ uses them. Again, verse 15. We are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. Referring to Christ as our head is a reminder that he is our authority. We're his body. He's the head. He makes the decisions. He leads us. 
There's a a reminder in that phrase that Christian growth is not just about personal development. I'm just a better person now. I'm more patient. I'm more kind. That that Christian growth is not just that. It's a deepening relationship with Christ as Lord. I'm growing into Christ. I'm, I'm walking more closely with him. I walk with the awareness that he's my Lord. He directs me. I'm subject to him. I'm subject to his word. He's my standard for growth, and he's my leader. So Christ's vision for the church is a Christ-exalting, what was the first word I said? Sincerity, truth and love, and then a Christ-exalting growth. Number three, last one. Christ's vision for the church is a Christ-exalting dependence. Christ-exalting dependence. When Paul describes his conversion in Galatians 1, he's describing it to the church, and when he's done, he says, and everybody was glorifying God because of me. God had produced a change in Paul, and he said that resulted in people praising God. But it's so simple to try to be or act like a Christian or a Christian church and flip that around. I want everyone to be exalting me because of God. Look at what I've done. Look at what we've done. That doesn't honor Christ. The heart behind verse 16 is a, is a recognition that none of this happens by our power. The pastor teachers can't make this happen. You can't make it happen. I can't make it happen. It's all from God. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians about their own spiritual growth, remember he was dealing with a, a battling group. Oh, no, I like Paul's teaching. No, I like Jesus' teaching. I like Peter's teaching. I like, I like Apollos' teaching. And Paul said to them, Look, look, I planted, I planted the seed. Apollo's watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. There, there's a mystery here, like, like in many doctrines of the scripture. There's a mystery because behind it all is God's power, God's sovereignty, but that doesn't mean we don't do anything. The elders have a part to play in the health and the maturity of the church. All of us as members have a part to play in the health of the church. But behind that, we always need to remember that the growth comes from God. And so we are to depend on him in everything. We pray. We ask his spirit to work in someone's life. Jesus, by his spirit, gave us spiritual life. He gave it to us by his word. And as we use our spiritual gifts, as we minister the truth in love, we pray that his spirit will unite us more and more to Christ. Jesus is the one empowering us so that we individually and collectively would be useful for the glory of God. Look at verse 16. So again, he's speaking of Christ. It says, from whom? From Christ. From Christ, the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And when each part is working properly, the subject there would be he, but he's behind it all. The body, it, it, he makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Builds itself up is a reference to the work that we're doing to minister one another, but it doesn't mean it all depends on us. It's Christ, he's doing it. He gets the glory. In Psalm 139, we have the, that uh, beautiful picture of, of a baby being formed in his mother's womb. He says, you formed my inner parts You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I think it's David who wrote that one. 
David says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That, so that, that's true in a personal sense. God formed us in our mother's womb. It's a wonderful work of God to form a child's body inside his, his or her mother. But it's just as wonderful and it should be just as amazing to us that he formed us into the body of Christ. As first bilingual Baptist church, he, he formed us into who we are today. Your body has a skeleton. Your skeleton gives you structure. And then where, where, where two different bones touch, you have joints and that enables movement. Then you have ligaments and tendons. They're like the rubber bands inside you holding everything together, connecting bone to bone, connecting muscle to bone. And anytime one of those pieces isn't working, you immediately know. What was yesterday? We were up on climbing a fence at, at, at the park trying to get a balloon. I'm going to be 38 years old. That fence just feels higher than it used to feel. My daughter was climbing on the monkey bars and someone said, is she going to drop from that height? And I said, I think so. And she just lets it go and she drops and everyone goes, oh, to be young. <laughs> when all the joints and all the ligaments move good, we get older and we realize how valuable those things are. You can't move the same way. But when everything is working the way it's supposed to, when all the parts, like Paul says, are, are working properly, he doesn't say you get to be pain free. That's not the goal. He says you get to work. You get to move. God didn't give us physical bodies so we could waste hours and hours on the couch every day. He gave us a body so we could work. Well, why did God create the body of Christ? So we could get to work. And what is Christian work? That goes back to verse 13. Oh, sorry, verse 12. We're equipped for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We depend on the strength that God supplies, that's what Peter says, and we do the work. We speak the truth in love to one another to the end that we all look more and more like Jesus. That's the picture of the church. It's not intended to be a place I show up on Sundays, I go home, I never talk to anybody else, leave me alone. When you become a member, we do the best we can as elders to instruct people. This is what it is to be part of the community that Christ has created. You're here to grow. And as you grow, you will be ministered by others that will help you grow, and you will minister to others. And we get better at ministering. Verse 16 ends by saying, the end product is a body who, by the power of Christ, is building itself up, and he adds that word again, in love. Paul points us back to love. We're not supposed to be taskmasters over one another. We're not here to police the church, and you're not supposed to be doing this, and you're not supposed to be doing this. We're to lovingly come alongside brothers and sisters so we help each other look more and more like Christ. One of the things we, we repeat when we do membership interviews or membership classes, and I've heard multiple elders say this, when you say I'm becoming a member, you're giving us the freedom, you're inviting us into your life. And if you stop showing up and expect and get upset when three months later someone's knocking on your door, you didn't understand what community meant. We're gonna go looking for you because we care about you. That, that, that should be our attitude with the church. We, I'm here to serve and they're here to serve. Serve. 
And if someone comes to me and draws my attention to an area of my life that can better reflect the glory of Christ, I shouldn't get upset because they should have done it in a better way. Maybe they could have. But I should start by thanking them because that's not easy. We all feel that. That's that's a hard thing to do. But they loved me enough to say something. That type of attitude should affect how we get ready for church in the morning. We're not getting ready just to get dressed. We're being prepared mentally to gather with our brothers and sisters. It's not just, well, what's the service going to be about? What's in it for me? We need to remind ourselves, whether it's Sunday morning, whether it's FLGs, whether it's an informal meeting in someone's house, you're telling yourself, I'm a member of the body of Christ. I have a responsibility today to exhort, to to encourage them in the Lord. I want to help build others up in love. And the wonder of God is that that day, God may have you in someone's life at that moment just to help them endure a trial or a temptation. God may have you there to refresh them, to to strengthen them. But in all of it, we remember, it's not us, it's Christ in us. We rely on him. Christ wants a church marked by sincerity, marked by growth, and marked by dependence. If we pursue that, then as a church and individually, we'll be living up to God's design for the church. Let me close with one passage that is um, a reminder how important this is. We can't take our own spiritual growth, we can't take others' spiritual growth for granted, we can't just assume it's going to happen. Turn with me to John chapter 15. And we'll close with this. John chapter 15, it's the final message Jesus gives his disciples before he's arrested. He's gonna be put to death the next day. He's in the upper room. You're gonna hear a lot of parallel themes, but rather than quote verses, I just thought I would turn there at the end and and read it together. John 15, verse one. You're gonna see unity. You're gonna see growth. He describes as fruit. And you're gonna see why it matters. John 15, Verse one, Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then he says to his gathered disciples, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to. He affirms their their salvation. Judas has already left Verse four, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing then there is the warning of verse 6 if anyone does not abide in me he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered thrown into the fire and burned Spiritual growth matters to our Heavenly Father.
spiritual growth matters to Christ and spiritual growth should matter to you as well. Let's pray. Father, we pray you would help us move in this direction individually as families and as a church. You want there to be sincerity in our hearts. You want there to be a love for truth and a love for people. Forgive us for the times that we lean so much on truth that we speak in a harsh way, thinking that we have the power to change someone else. Forgive us for the times that we are afraid to speak up for your truth out of a false understanding of what love looks like. Keep us from any self-deception in these areas. We pray you would increase our desire for personal growth and for the love of others. Give us a burden to see others not just be saved, but to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Deepen our relationships. And in all that we do, Lord, keep us from exalting ourselves. Help us exalt Christ. May we be dependent on him. May we rely on his power. May we trust in him for the growth that only he can bring. To you, Lord Jesus, be the glory forever. In your name we pray. Amen.